Welcome to the latest episode of The Quantitative Perspective, the podcast where we look at topics from around the world through a quantitative lens, dissecting the statistics, mathematics, and physics behind the headlines to bring a deeper and possibly alternative narrative to light. The podcast whose motto is, in God we trust, all others must bring data. I'm Kevin Oden, the podcast host, and in today's episode, we look at vaccine hesitancy, the anti-vaccination movement, and vaccine apartheid. We conclude with discussing some fascinating and groundbreaking mathematics of viruses that may lead to even more fascinating and and really controversial possibilities to solve the hesitancy and, and possibly the anti-vaxxers and, and uh, vaccine apartheid, which we'll talk about later. So let's get started with our story in what may seem to be an unlikely place, the Middle Ages in East Africa and China, and smallpox. Smallpox was a scourge of the ancient world that has been practically eradicated from the world since 1980. So, smallpox was a terrible disease. On average, three out of every 10 people who who received it died. People who survived usually had scars, which were sometimes quite severe. One of the first methods for controlling smallpox was something called variolation a process named after the virus, eventually named after the virus, virus, variola. But what was, but it was actually well known and practiced since at least the 16th century in East Africa and China. During variolation, people who never had smallpox were exposed to material from smallpox sores. By scratching that material into their arm or inhaling it through the nose, After variolation, people usually develop the symptoms associated with smallpox, such as fever and rash. However, fewer people died from variolation than if they had acquired smallpox naturally. Around 1716 in Boston, a Christian minister named Cotton Mather learned the practice from one of his slaves, Onesimus who had described to Mather the process of inoculation that had, been, that had been performed on him and others in his society in Africa. Mather reported in a letter to a, fo- a fellow minister. The practice was widespread among enslaved colonial people from many regions of Africa. And in fact, when Boston experienced a smallpox outbreak in 1721, Mather promoted inoculation as protection against it. However, to his credit, and probably the misfortune of many Bostonians, he cited Onesimus and African folk medicine as the source of the procedure. His advocacy for inoculation met resistance from those suspicious of African medicine, doctors, ministers, laymen, and Bostonian, Boston city officials argue that the practice of inoculating healthy individuals would spread the disease and that it was immoral to interfere with the working of divine providence. Also, Mather was ridiculed publicly for relying on the testimony of a slave. 
Here we have one of the earliest cases of vaccine resistance due to lack of information, foresight, or, or very simply ignorance. Jonathan Berman, in his book, Anti-Vaxxers, How to Change a Misinformed Movement, is a MIT physiologist who's also uh, obviously an author, writes, and I quote, the need to control outbreaks and pandemics has long created tensions between liberty and interdependence, similar to those playing out worldwide today. He goes on to quote that vaccination has always been a lightning rod for storms brewing over other problems. For example, the people who protested against mandatory smallpox vaccination in 19th century England years after the Mather incident have previously led opposition to the 1834 Poor Law Amendment Act, which proposed that unemployed people must labor in workhouses for food, often under conditions of exploitation, child labor, and family separation. The protesters saw mandatory vaccination as a, as a similar assault on poor people's autonomy. This echoes much of what we hear today in our U.S. experience. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, and we will have, uh, as we will have much more on this later. So, who cares if, uh, if I get vaccinated or if we all get vaccinated? One of the first questions you typically receive from a vaccine-hesitant individual, or sometimes the vaccine-resistant or anti-vaxxer, is one, how effective is it? And the second question is typically, what are the long-term side effects? I won't take up the long-term effects on many vaccines that have been around for decades, but I will discuss efficacy and its impact. As for efficacy, the mathematical statistics of determining viral uh, vaccine efficacy has evolved a bit and is very inter interesting. I will not go into much detail here, but there is a great blog by Sachin Date. Um, very nice blog. He gives a great description of the underlying mathematics, along with Python code for those who are, who are so inclined. But let's start with an easy example and discuss the social and economic impacts of efficacy. And we'll start with the smallpox vaccine. According to the CDC, smallpox vaccination can protect you from smallpox for about three to five years. After that time, its ability to protect you decreases. If you need long-term protection, you may, you may need to get a booster vaccination. And importantly, the vaccine has been effective in preventing smallpox infection in 95% of those vaccinated. In addition, the vaccine was proven to prevent or substantially lessen infection when given within a few days after a person was exposed to the virus. So with a few simple and not too unrealistic assumptions, for instance, assuming that the probability of you dying from causes other than smallpox over the next year is say, let's say 10%. It's a high number, but let's say 10%. At minimum, your probability of dying will decrease by more than 60% over the next year. 
all other things being equal, if you are vaccinated for smallpox. This is a dramatic reduction, which has been borne out in reality around the globe with a substantial increase in life expectancy in most countries. But what about a virus that is normally less virulent, but more widespread, and has a lower efficacy, and a vaccine that has a lower efficacy rate? What is the benefit there? Let's focus on flu and the flu vaccine. So the CDC conducts studies each year to determine how well the influenza vaccine protects against flu. While vaccine effectiveness can vary, recent studies show that flu vaccination reduces the risk of flu illness by anywhere between 40% and 60% among the overall population during seasons when most circulating flu viruses are well matched to the flu vaccine. So hold that thought. Of course, it needs to be closely matched to the flu vaccine, uh, to the flu virus, that is. In general, current flu vaccines tend to work better against influenza B and uh, the H1N1 and also against H3N2 viruses, um, the last two being A strains. However, from the quantitative perspective, in the United States, in 1960, when the flu vaccine became widely available in American, to, to Americans, late 50s, early 60s, according to the CDC, approximately 4% of citizens' deaths were attributed to flu, attributable to flu, or roughly 4 per 100 deaths. Heart disease was the leading cause of death, which it, which it still, unfortunately, is today. At a 40% to 60% efficacy rate, that number has dropped to just above 2% in 2018. That's a 50% reduction in mortality. And these numbers do not take into account the fact that flu vaccine prevents millions of, of illnesses and flu-related doctor visits each year. For example, during the 2019-20 season, Flu vaccination prevented an estimated 7.5 million influenza illnesses, 3.7 million influenza-associated medical visits, and 105,000 flu-associated hospitalizations, according to the CDC. So you as an individual decrease the probability of illness, the cost of medical visits or hospitalizations, or even worse, death by being vaccinated with a vaccine with a mere 40% to 60% efficacy. So I'm actually appealing to, to first, the selfish you. Now I'm gonna to try to appeal, well, sort of to the selfish you again, but, but by talking about the social benefits of more people getting vaccinated. Let's turn to, to the virus itself. A virus is a submicroscopic infectious agent that, replica that replicates only inside the living cells of an organism. Viruses infect all types of life forms, from animals and plants to microorganisms, including bacteria. But what's important for our social argument is virus mutation. While it's important to understand that many of these mutations are minor and don't have an overall impact on how 
fast a virus spreads or potentially how severe a viral infection might be. In fact, some mutations could actually be uh, make the virus less infectious. It is the mutations that in increase the spread and the severity that can be the most dangerous. Much of our knowledge of how viruses change to escape natural or vaccine-elicited immune immunity comes, again, from uh, observing the flu virus and constantly updating flu vaccines. So once again, we're going to return to the flu virus. So the influenza virus basically changes in two main ways, and they're called antigenic drift and antigenic shift. As a virus replicates, its genes undergo random copying errors. These are the mutations. Over time, these genetic copying errors can, among other changes to the virus, lead to alterations in the virus's surface proteins or the antigens. Our immune system uses these antigens to recognize and fight the virus. So what happens if a virus mutates to evade our, uh, our immune system? So in the flu virus case, gene mutations accumulate and cause its antigens to drift, meaning the, the surface of the mutated virus looks different than the original virus. And when these drifts occur, uh, vaccines against old strains of the virus and immunity from previous virus um, infections no longer work against the new drifted strains. A person then becomes vulnerable to the newer mutated virus. When you think about antigenic drifts, uh, that's uh, where the problems come in. Uh, antigenic drift is one of the main reasons why the flu vaccine must be reviewed and updated each year to keep up with the influence, influence of virus as it changes. However, in, influence of viruses can also undergo something known as antigenic shift. And this is really a very abrupt major change in the virus's antigenes that happen less frequently than, than the drift changes. It occurs when two different but related in, in, uh, influenza virus strains infect a host cell at the same time. Because influenza virus genomes are formed by eight separate pieces of RNA, sometimes these viruses can mate in a sense, quote unquote, in a process called reassortment. During reassortment, two influenza viruses gene, uh, virus genomes segments can combine to make a new strain. There is generally no immunity provided by the older vaccine when you have this antigenic shift. But the good news is viruses require hosts, typically you or other living things, to replicate and, and to go through these antigenic drifts or, or the more dramatic shifts. And if everyone is vaccinated, there are no hosts, or at least no human hosts. So you are protected when society is protected. So let's think about this society being protected. And when we don't have society protected, you, you really have preventable deaths. And the toll on the world from preventable deaths is dramatic. 
As we already noted, the smallpox vaccine effectively eliminated smallpox from the world as a preponderance of the world became vaccinated. However, there are vaccines for many other deadly and debilitating viruses, ranging from tuberculosis, measles, hepatitis B, to meningitis and tetanus and, and, and others. Given the personal risk to an individual not being vaccinated from from a health and well-being perspective to an economic cost on society for, for, for caring for these individuals, as well as if you're, if you're purely an econo- uh, economist, the productivity, the productivity lost. And as I just mentioned, the risk that clearly preventable diseases find a pathway to becoming untreatable pandemics. It's astonishing that we still have the number of deaths around the globe each year from these diseases. For example, in 1990, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation estimated that more than 1.6 million worldwide died from tuberculosis, a very treatable disease. That number only dropped to 1.2 million in 2017. While measles has dropped precipitously precipitously over that period of time, the levels are still shockingly high at the end of 2017 and actually show an uptick. Some of the problems are due to war and ideology. For example, total preventable deaths, disease deaths in Afghanistan increased dramatically from 1996 to 2001 under the Taliban, nearly doubling before beginning a steady decline for the seven following years. We can only wonder and worry what the next decade holds for Afghanistan. But shockingly, in Western Europe, the rate of decrease has flattened out in the last couple of years. And in the U.S., there is a troubling uptick in preventable deaths. Again, flu data can provide some clues. Despite CDC recommendations, 55% of Americans don't get vaccinated against the seasonal flu. Many Americans aren't required to get the flu vaccine. The percentage of the population that's been vaccinated against the flu has risen this decade from 43% in 2010 to 2011 to 49% in 2018-2019. During this time span, 45% of Americans on average have been getting vaccinated yearly again, according to the CDC. In the 2018-2019 flu season, the CDC estimated that Nevada had the lowest vaccination rate among U.S. states. Only 37.8% of people in Nevada got a flu vaccine, making it the only state with a vaccination rate below 40%. Of note, just 20% of people ages 18 to 49 in that state were vaccinated against the flu also the lowest. After Nevada, a number of the lowest vaccination rates appear in the South. In fact, four of the 10 least vaccinated states were in the South, including Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Georgia. In Mississippi, which had the lowest percentage of vaccine exemptions, only 42% of people voluntarily got flu shots in 2018 the fourth lowest rate. On the reverse side, Rhode Island at 60.4% had the largest share of its population vaccinated against seasonal flu. 
New England was well represented in the most vaccinated states as Massachusetts followed Rhode Island with a rate of 58.9%, and Connecticut was close behind at 56.8%. As for COVID-19, a survey conducted this summer by Value Penguin found that 36% of people said they were going to get the coronavirus vaccine when it came out, no matter what happened. However, about 14% said they wouldn't get vaccinated under any circumstances. Almost 10% said they wouldn't vaccinate their kids. But there are cautionary success stories to preventable disease. For example, though starting from very high levels, the last 20 years has seen a steady and dramatic decrease in the India subcontinent. Sub-Saharan Africa has seen a less dramatic but substantial decline. These are efforts that should be applauded, but still need to be accelerated. But in order to continue these success stories, there needs to be a a global effort. And that's where we turn to vaccine apartheid. In a recent article by Jesse Ferrampong from the Canadian National Observer uh, in May of 2021, he said, we can now add to the list vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine apartheid, a term that best describes how wealthy countries like Canada and the U.S. have called dibs on 80% of the world's vaccine doses, leaving a paltry 0.3% for low-income countries. Back in 2020, the early multilateral pandemic response was coalescing around an open-sourced approach that would pull vaccine and treatment research, while also training new vaccine manufacturers in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. But the New Republic reported that vaccine companies and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation crowded these efforts out with an approach based on patent protection and a mechanism whereby rich countries could subsidize vaccines for poor countries. Today, as variants surge throughout the world, and in particular in India, this mechanism is well short of its promise to distribute 2 billion vaccines. As pandemic deaths in poor countries balloon from 9.3% of the global total to 30% recently, its brown and black bodies are left gasping for breath. Sub-Saharan Africa has administered the fewest vaccines relative to its population of any region, with roughly eight doses per 1,000 versus 150 per 1,000 people globally, according to the World Health Organization. The South African President Cyril Ramaphosa recalled that 20 years ago, South Africa faced off against Big Pharma, his quote, quote unquote, over efforts to import and manufacture affordable generic antiviral medicines to treat people with HIV AIDS. He says, and I quote, years later, the world is in the grip of another deadly pandemic in the form of COVID-19. And once again, South Africa is waging a struggle that puts global solidarity to the test. Unquote. This is a problem duplicated around the globe and heightened in the developing world. I do not want to jump into the debate about opening up patent rights for COVID-19 because I do believe it is a complicated issue. 
the principal complication coming from from truly a uh, an humanitarian perspective, uh, which deals with the ability to control production quality. However, I do want to talk about what the future could hold. So we end by talking about just that. Uh, what's the future of virology and vaccinations and the controversial possibilities? First, we note that since the time of Onesimus, vaccines have been essentially developed from so-called dead viruses to help coax the immune system along. However, with a new messenger or messenger RNA or, or mRNA methodologies employed by Pfizer and Moderna, this approach has radically changed. These new techniques instead teach ourselves how to make a protein or even just a piece of a protein that triggers an immune response inside our bodies. That immune response, which produces antibodies, is what protects us from getting infected if the real virus enters our, enters our bodies. These types of vaccines are, are interesting for, for a number of reasons, but in particular because they can be developed in a laboratory using readily available materials. This means the process can be standardized and scaled up, making vaccine development faster than traditional methods. And we've witnessed this with the COVID-19 vaccines. Equally interesting is the work of Raiden Twarok, a mathematician at the University of York in, in the UK, who has used her expertise in geometry and symmetry to, to develop a better understanding of viral structure, the infection process, and evolution. There is the very real belief that this work could lead to the development of synthetic good viruses that could literally fight the bad or lethal viruses, or even lead to more cost-effective, easily distributed aerosol or fluid antivirals, virals, which could be introduced into water or, in an even more controversial move, sprayed over populations like a crop duster. Apart from these more controversial possibilities, it is important for humankind, and in particular the, the, the developed world, to realize that we have a selfish obligation to try to vaccinate the entire world as quickly as possible for our self-interest before the viruses ravage all of us. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Quantitative Perspective. I look forward to our next episode in roughly a week's time.